Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 125. Today's big Bible question, is the Bible anti-sex? And I got to give a warning at the beginning, this episode is rated NFY. So happy Saturday, friends, and welcome into the first ever NFY episode of the Bible Reading Podcast. Uh, What does that mean? Well, if I was recording this particular episode from my beautiful home state of Alabama, Deep in the hollers of L.A., which stands for Lower Alabama, if you're from Alabama, I would rate this show NFY, standing for Not For Youngins. Don't worry, we're not going to get too saucy, but it is a bit of a mature topic. And I will say this, um, I'm actually from Birmingham, Alabama, that's in the northern third of the state, and I can count the number of true rednecks, like the kind of people that would say things like holler and youngins and that sort of thing. I can count the number of those people that I knew on, uh, uh, well, two hands. I probably knew less than 10 of them. Um, There just wasn't a lot of that sort of thing around Birmingham. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, but this will be a short episode today, uh, because I've got a massive plumbing job to go finish up on, and it's already late at night. So that might be good news for some of you who prefer the short shows, maybe not so good for others. I will say this, for those that prefer the longer shows, know that I would much rather be podcasting than plumbing. Ugh. Today's Bible readings include Numbers chapter 9, Psalms 45, Song of Songs chapter 7 and Hebrews chapter 7. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it, and if you haven't, you haven't been paying attention, but Song of Songs, or also known as the Song of Solomon, has a lot of sexual language in it, and honestly, some of it is fairly explicit. Now, I'm not going to quote it right now, but chapter 5 in particular is very, very, uh, let's just say colorful in its language, And today's chapter is pretty colorful, too. Some of the language is quite uh, strange to us in Song of Solomon. Uh, Some of it's kind of funny uh, because it uses some pretty odd euphemisms and metaphors um, from, you know, over 2,000 years ago. For instance, uh, Song of Songs 1-9, I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. All right, she looks like a horse. That doesn't sound too good to me. Or how about uh, Song of Solomon 2.9? My love is like a gazelle or a young stag. See, he's standing behind our wall, gazing through the windows, peering through the lattice. So he's like a four-legged peeping Tom, maybe? I I don't know what's being communicated there. Or how about chapter 4, verse 1? Your hair is like a flock of goats streaming down Mount Gilead. Okay, I can picture, never been to Mount Gilead, uh, but I can picture some goats running down a pretty hill, and that doesn't sound like a great compliment, though, to a woman's hair. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Or how about uh, chapter 4, verse 2? Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one bearing twins, and none has lost its young. Okay, um, well, sheep are white, so that's a good thing. Uh, But you know what? I take offense to that last little part. None has lost its young. As a man who's missing a tooth in the back of his mouth, um, you can't really see it, but I'm still missing it. I'm kind of ticked off here. I, uh, I feel like uh, Song of Songs is taking a shot at me there because one of my teeth has lost its young. Or how about 4-4? This is the funniest one of all. Your neck is like the Tower of David, 
constructed in layers. A thousand shields are hung on it, all of them shields of warriors. That doesn't sound uh, attractive or romantic or hot or whatever you want to call it at all. That just sounds like you're describing some sort of terrible skin disease. Or 5 verse 12, chapter 5 verse 12, his eyes are like doves beside flowing streams washed in milk. Okay, doves by the river that have been washed in milk. Huh. Oh, yeah. Anyway, don't laugh too hard about that because, you know, some of our metaphors and euphemisms are uh, kind of odd too. And maybe you're wondering about how uh, the, the Solomon, uh, keeps calling his bride, his sister, his bride all through that. And you're thinking, wait a minute, sister bride, that sounds a little sketchy. Well, I think it's sort of like, uh, if you grew up watching Saved by the Bell as I did, I think it's sort of like, uh, what A.C. Slater used to call Jesse Spano, um, hot mama or something like that. I don't know. Um, but, you know, we have these weird ways of discussing romantic language, and apparently it's been going on for thousands of years. Now, most people think Christians are prudes, and most people probably think the Bible is anti-sex. Is that true? Well, there's a word in our culture. That word is puritanical. It's named after a particular group of Christians, and it means having standards of moral behavior that forbid many pleasures. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, the Bible is really against pleasure. God must be against pleasure, that sort of thing. But the thing about it is, the Bible itself is not at all anti-sex, you know, within certain important boundaries. And the Puritans weren't actually puritanical either. They did kind of enjoy pleasure, and they were all for it. Now, they worried about uh, pleasures that were ungodly, but they had this deep understanding that uh, I think a lot of modern Christians have lost uh, that the best pleasures are pleasures from God. And if that's an intriguing idea to you, I do want to encourage you to check out John Piper's seminal book called Desiring God, where he unpacks the whole uh, thing of Christian hedonism. Uh, again, that is the theory that the greatest pleasures are in God. Well, we might talk about that in a minute more, but let me quote you a couple of Puritans from the 1600s to kind of see whether they were anti-sex or pro-sex. Here's one, William Googe. He said, one of the best remedies that can be prescribed to married persons next to an awful fear of God and a continual setting of him before them uh, is that husband and wife mutually delight in each other and maintain a pure and fervent love betwixt themselves, yielding that due benevolence one to another, he's talking about sex, which is warranted and sanctified by God's word and ordained of God for this particular end. This due benevolence, as the apostle styleth it, is one of the most proper and essential acts of marriage and necessary for the principal ends thereof. As for preservation of chastity, chastity, in such as have not the gift of continency for increasing the world with legitimate brood and for leaking the affections of the married couple more firmly together. 
These ends of marriage, at least the two former, are made void without this duty be performed, as it is called benevolence because it must be performed with good will and delight, willingly, readily, and cheerfully, so it is said, to be due because it is a debt which the wife oweth to her husband and he to her. Did you catch all those words? Delight and uh, yielding to each other, benevolence, joyful, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. The Puritans viewed sex as a good thing in marriage. The Bible views sex as a good thing in marriage. Well, let's read Song of Songs chapter 7, and then we'll come back and discuss this a little bit more. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, princess. The curves of your thighs are like jewelry, the handiwork of a master. Your navel is a rounded bowl. It never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your eyes like pools in Heshbon by Bathrabim's gate. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, the hair of your head like purple cloth. A king could be held captive in your tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasant, my love, with such delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes and the fragrance of your breath like apricots. Your mouth is like fine wine, flowing smoothly for my love, gliding past my lips and teeth. I am my love's, and his desire is for me. Come, my love, let's go to the field. Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. Let's go early to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine is budded, if the blossom is opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my caresses. The mandrakes give off a fragrance, and at our doors is every delicacy, both new and old. I have treasured them up for you, my love. So, a couple of things there. One, I don't think I'd tell my wife that her nose was like a tower. I don't think she'd take that very well. Maybe back in the day, that was a nicer thing to say. Probably not the best thing to say now. The second thing is, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but there's a lot of Hebrew scholars that uh, believe that uh, the modern translations of the Bible uh, it as, uh, as colorful, almost explicit, as the language of Song of Solomon is, or Song of Songs is, there's a lot of Hebrew scholars that say, you know what, it's actually a little more colorful than most modern translations render it. Because there's some more stuff going on here, like we kind of implied earlier, than uh, we might pick up on the first read. Well, that's neither here nor there. I don't want to get into a PG-13 rating or anything like that. But suffice to say... Song of Solomon is pretty darn sexual. All right, well, back to uh, discussing our Puritan friends. Another Puritan, Richard Steele, also, I think, writing in the 1600s, said, 1 Corinthians 7 plainly shows that even the sober use of the marriage bed is such a mutual debt that it may not be intermitted long without necessity and consent. Neither desire of gain, nor fear of trouble, nor occasional disasters, nor pretense of religion should separate those from conjugal converse and cohabitation, unless with consent, and that but for a time, whom God hath joined together. 
So what's he saying? He's saying wives and husbands should have frequent, uh, what is the word he used? Conjugal converse. That's my new favorite phrase, conjugal converse. I'm going to try to use that in a sentence uh, each of the next seven days because that's, that's a good one. It's also worth noting that in the uh, 1600s, one man, James Maddock, was excommunicated from his Boston Puritan church for denying his wife her conjugal sexual rights for two years. Can you imagine getting booted out of church for that? Excommunicated? Holy cow, that's pretty crazy. Well, there's also several sex-positive passages in the Bible, of course, all written in the context of marriage. For instance, 1 Corinthians 7, 2-5, which our Puritan friends have already referred to, says this, Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. How about that? In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. How about that? Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's a pretty fascinating passage, right? And by the way, the parts where I said, how about that? Uh, That was me. That was my commentary. I shouldn't do that when I'm reading scripture. Paul did not actually himself insert how about that into 1 Corinthians because that would have been... um, very unpauline. Uh, how about Song of Songs 7, 6 through 9? We just read it, but uh, it bears reading again, if I can do it without giggling. How beautiful you are and how pleasant, my love, with such delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes and the fragrance of your breath like apricots. Your mouth is like fine wine. Now, I don't know uh, about apricot breath. I guess that's okay. But the rest of that stuff actually sounds, you know, pretty good. You're definitely seeing uh, this pro-pleasure viewpoint of sex in the Bible. What about Proverbs 5.18? Let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure, pleasure in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts always satisfy you. Be lost in her love forever. Why, my son, would you lose yourself with a forbidden woman or embrace a wayward woman? In that last passage, that Proverbs passage, it really kind of nails the Bible teaching on sex overall. That sex was designed for husband and wife, not just for procreation, in other words, having babies. Some Christians in the past, and I guess even some Christians today, uh, misguidedly think that the Bible uh, teaches that sex is only for procreation. It's not. It's for pleasure. It's right there in Proverbs 5, other places too. Pleasure is not a bad thing, biblically. The Bible points us to the pleasure of knowing God and following his ways, including the blessings of pleasure of sex inside of marriage. Now, that said, the Bible is quite explicit in its condemnation of sexual pleasure apart from the marital relationship, as we see here in Proverbs 5.20. So, is the Bible anti-sex? Not at all. The Bible encourages husbands and wives to have delightful and pleasurable and regular sex. Sex is made for marriage, and it is created to make marriage pleasurable and fruitful and enjoyable and good. 
Of course, yes, according to the Bible, all sex outside the bounds of marriage uh, is forbidden by the Bible, but sex inside of marriage is never treated like a gross or an unclean thing in the Bible and not even treated like a necessary evil or anything like that, but rather like a beautiful gift that is designed to bless and sustain both the husband and the wife. So God is not anti-pleasure. According to the word of God, he is the source of greatest pleasures. Psalm 1611, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Or as another translation puts it, pleasures forevermore. So where do the eternal pleasures of the world come from? They come from God. Is God anti-pleasure? Not a bit. He's pro-pleasure because he has the best pleasures, and the Bible is not anti-sex. It's pro-good, pleasurable, joyful sex in the bounds of marriage. So there you go. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Numbers chapter 9, verse 1. In the first month of the second year after their departure from the land of Egypt, the Lord told Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, the Israelites are to observe the Passover at its appointed time. You must observe it at its appointed time on the 14th day of the month at twilight. You are to observe it according to all its statutes and ordinances. So Moses told the Israelites to observe the Passover, and they observed it in the first month on the 14th day at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai. The Israelites did everything as the Lord had commanded Moses. But there were some men who were unclean because of a human corpse, so they could not observe the Passover on that day. These men came before Moses and Aaron the same day and said to him, We are unclean because of a human corpse. Why should we be excluded from presenting the Lord's offering at its appointed time with the other Israelites? Moses replied to them, Wait until I hear what the Lord commands for you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, When any one of you or your descendants is unclean because of a corpse or is on a distant journey, he may still observe the Passover to the Lord. Such people are to observe it in the second month on the fourteenth day at twilight. They are to eat the animal with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They may not leave any of it until morning or break any of its bones. They must observe the Passover according to all its statutes. But the man who is ceremonially clean is not on a journey and yet fails to observe the Passover is to be cut off from his people because he did not present the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man will bear the consequences of his sin. If an alien resides with you and wants to observe the Passover to the Lord, He is to do it according to the Passover statute and its ordinances. You are to apply the same statute to both the resident alien and the native of the land. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and it appeared like fire above the tabernacle from evening until morning. It remained that way continuously. The cloud would cover it, appearing like fire at night. Whenever the cloud was lifted up above the tent, the Israelites would set out. At the place where the cloud stopped, There the Israelites camped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at the Lord's command, they camped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they camped. Even when the cloud stayed over the tabernacle many days, the Israelites carried out the Lord's requirement and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud remained over the tabernacle for only a few days. They would camp at the Lord's command and set out at the Lord's command. Sometimes the cloud remained only from evening until morning. When the cloud lifted in the morning, they sat out. Or if it remained a day and a night, they moved out when the cloud lifted. Whether it was two days, a month, or longer, the Israelites camped and did not set out as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. But when it was lifted, they set out. 
They camped at the Lord's command and they set out at the Lord's command. They carried out the Lord's requirement according to his command through Moses. Psalm 45. My heart is moved by a noble theme as I recite my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most handsome of men. Grace flows from your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Mighty warrior, strap your sword at your side. In your majesty and splendor, in your splendor, ride triumphantly. In the cause of truth, humility, and justice, may your right hand show your awe-inspiring acts. Your sharpened arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. Myrrh, aloe, and cassia perfume all your garments. From ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. King's daughters are among your honored women. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. Listen, daughter, pay attention and consider. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Bow down to him, for he is your lord. The daughter of Tyre, the wealthy people, will seek your favor with gifts. In her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious, her clothing embroidered with gold. In colorful garments, she is led to the king. After her, the virgins, her companions, are brought to you. They are led in with gladness and rejoicing. They enter the king's palace. Your sons will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must be a change of the law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe, No one from it is served at the altar. Now it is evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears. You did not become a priest. Who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life? For it has been testified, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing, 
but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office, but because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints his high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Amen. Praise God for the high priestlyhood of Jesus based on his indestructible life. Blessed be his name. My friends, I hope the word of God has been an encouragement to you today. I hope your weekend goes well. Stay safe out there. Good day to you and Godspeed.